Well, good evening. Uh, my name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here. And we're, as you can tell, we're looking at the book of Esther. And uh, Esther is one of the more controversial books in the Bible. It was, um, it was a debate over whether it should even be canonized, um, primarily because God never appears on the stage. He really doesn't have any lines. Uh, his name is never even mentioned. No one directly speaks to God. Uh, it seems like a story that is ruled by chance and by caprice, by accident, by the whims of the Persian Empire. And uh, if it were not in the Bible, it, it might not even make it into a Christian bookstore. You know, a Christian bookstore might not put the book of Esther on their shelves. And it actually might be reviewed by the New York Times if it were not in the Bible. It's, uh, it's a very secular book, and um, someone was just saying to me last night that uh, it's the perfect book for us today because we live in a place, a very secular society, where you don't uh, really hear much about God. Um, it doesn't seem like necessarily God is anywhere. God seems very distant. And yet, in this chapter, more than any other chapter, in verse 14, more than any other verse, the author comes right to the edge of kind of showing his hand. And, and revealing his view of, of the world, which is very God-centered. In a, in, a, in a book that doesn't mention God, it's interesting how God-centered the worldview of this writer is. And in particular, verse 14 is really where I want to concentrate. If you keep quiet at a time like this, you and your family might die, but deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. According to Stan Guthrie, who wrote a book where he took every book of the Bible and he finds the most important verse in that book and then kind of explains the book of the Bible from that verse. It's a good book. According to, to him, this is the most important uh, verse in Esther. This is the theme verse of the book of Esther, uh, verse 14. And um, the reason that, that Guthrie says that is because this verse is so centered on the concept of God's sovereignty, on the sovereignty of God which was a uniquely Jewish concept. It was not a Persian concept. It was not an Egyptian concept. It was not a Babylonian or a Syrian concept. The Jews alone brought into the world this idea, this crazy idea that there was only one God. And that that God created everything. And that that God was the author of everything. And that that God was in control of every scene and every single bit of dialogue of the entire play that that God was to the world as Shakespeare to Hamlet that, the in, that was entirely outside of creation. That the gap between the creator and the creature was infinite. The, the creator and the creation were completely different kind of things. Um, that that the God, this God ruled everything. That he was sovereign. The very thing that the Persian government thought that they were, uh, the author of Esther knew that God actually was. And so I want to look at this idea of sovereignty, ironically, in a book that doesn't mention God. And yet, in this book, we see uh, sovereignty at work, very clearly. And uh, then I want to look at the appropriate response to sovereignty, which is trust. Because God is sovereign and controls everything, uh, our response to that, if, if anyone is rationally considering that idea and really thinking hard about the idea of sovereignty, the only appropriate response would be to trust in the one who is in control of everything. And so uh, that's the second point, trust. Trust in a God who is seemingly not sovereign many times, where it doesn't seem like God is in control. Uh, it doesn't seem like there's a loving hand behind everything that is operative. So trust in God, but first sovereignty, the, the sovereignty of God. Uh, a, a brief recap of the book of Esther. Um, 
Chapter 1, uh, King Xerxes, the most powerful man in the world, king of Persia, he divorces his wife, Queen Vashti. And he does so because she fails to participate in this little scheme that he's created where he wants her to be like this sex object for he and his drunken friends at this great big party. And she refused to do that, so he divorces her. That's chapter 1. In chapter 2, King Xerxes decides he's going to set up this um, kind of beauty contest, uh, kind of disgusting beauty contest to see who's going to be the new queen. And who, he's going to bring all these virgins from all the different parts of the empire. And whoever pleases him in bed the most will be the new queen. And uh, against all odds, this Jewish girl named Esther, uh, her real name's Hadassah, which means myrtle tree, but her name is changed to Ishtar, which is the Persian goddess of love, like Venus or Aphrodite. So Ishtar, or Esther, wins the contest. And then that leads to chapter 3, which is really where the central conflict of the book is set up. Because in chapter 3, we are introduced to this man named Haman. Uh, And Haman is friends with Xerxes. And if Xerxes is the most powerful man in the world, then Haman is the second most powerful man in the world. And uh, Haman convinces Xerxes to pass a law. And the law was that everyone must bow down to Haman whenever he passes by. So we, we saw how last week that Haman must have been a very insecure man to have to have a law passed where if anyone uh, is near him, they have to bow down to him. And so Xerxes does that, but then this other man named Mordecai, who we met last week, uh, Mordecai is Esther's cousin, also Jewish, and because he's Jewish, he will not bow down to Haman. And so Haman walks by, Mordecai doesn't bow down, Haman is infuriated by that to the extent that he convinces King Xerxes to pass a law that every person who is Jewish must be destroyed. That's how outraged Haman is that Mordecai will not bow down to him. And then Xerxes, not knowing that his wife is Jewish, passes such a law. And so that takes us to the end of chapter 3, where this Holocaust is about to happen. Luckily, it's not for several months, but nevertheless, uh, this law has been passed for all Jews in the empire to be exterminated. And so verse 1, Mordecai tore his clothes, which was a Jewish way of expressing enormous grief, public, long-lasting grief, where there's wailing, uh, bitter wailing, loud cries throughout the entire city. Uh, Mordecai was publicly showing uh, how devastated he was, how grief-stricken he was. And it wasn't just him. The other Jews as well expressed this terrible pain, obviously, that this decree had been passed. So he's overwhelmed by grief. But then somewhere in the middle of that grief, um, Mordecai thinks through the implications of the sovereignty of God. And at some point in his head, he has this crazy idea that maybe Esther was made queen for just such a time as this. And that little phrase, for such a time as this, is kind of the phrase that a lot of people associate with the book of Esther. That maybe you were placed where you are in life at this very time in life, for just such a time as this. And that's what Mordecai thinks, maybe that's why Esther is queen, is to prevent this Holocaust from occurring. And so what he does is he immediately kind of messages uh, Esther. And this guy, Hatak, um, that poor guy goes back and forth so many times, like six to eight times in the passage. He's kind of like a, a text message. And first, Mordecai sends him to Esther, and then Esther sends him back to Mordecai, Mordecai back to Esther, and he just keeps going back and forth. But basically, uh, Mordecai says to Esther, 
you are our only hope. Uh, We have no other hope to be saved but by you. So please plead for the, the safety of the Jews. Plead to the king to reverse his decree. And uh, Esther knew how dangerous that request was. And she tells him in a way that almost seems peevish, although I don't think it is. But in verse 11, she says, it's almost like she says, don't you know that anyone that appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his golden scepter? And the king has not called for me to come to him for 30 days. Which means, basically she thinks that maybe the king is a little upset with her or not interested in her because for 30 days he hasn't come, asked for her to come. And now she's supposed to go waltzing into the, in, right into his, uh, into his throne room and just come up and ask him for something that is this huge where he's actually got to change his mind, which kings didn't do, and cross his friend Haman, the most, second most powerful man in the world. H- how in the world, Esther's thinking, could that happen? There's no way that could happen. And I'm risking my life because anyone goes to the king's chamber without being invited could easily be killed if the king's having a bad day or even maybe not having a bad day. And I've I've been reading the Lord of the Rings um, and I was just thinking about how the crazy plan of of Gandalf sending these two tiny hobbits right into the darkest depths of Mordor to destroy the Ring of Power and to kill Sauron. And it's kind of like that here. This plan uh, of, of Mordecai is absurd. I mean, um, this has got a snowball's chance in hell of working. And yet, he sends her in there uh, to do that. He asked her to go in there to do that. And he's so convinced of the sovereignty of God that he says, and here's verse 14, If you keep quiet, at a time like this, you and your relatives will die, but deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. I'm going to read that again, and I want you to try to detect the paradox of that verse, because it was really messing with me a lot this week as I read it. If you keep quiet, you and your relatives are going to die. And yet, deliverance and relief for the Jews is going to happen, period. No questions asked. That that is going to happen. And yet, your decision matters. And yet, this is definitely going to happen. And it's this very strange paradox you see throughout Scripture. This is not the only place you see it. But the paradox is that our decisions matter very much in what happens in the future. Um, And yet, at the same time, that God is in complete control of the final outcome. And a lot of times you have debates between Christians, and they're debating the two sides of this thing where they're both sides of the same coin. Um, You know, our free will absolutely matters, and yet God's absolute control is there nonetheless. Um, It's... As I said, a consistent pattern in the Bible. There's another place where it's even more strange. So Paul, the apostle, this is in the New Testament. Uh, Paul, the apostle, is out at sea on a ship. And there's a terrible storm that comes up. And everyone thinks they're going to die. And then Paul says in Acts 27, 22, an angel of God told me last night that none of us are going to die. So he, he hears from an angel of the Lord. And he says, this is what God says. None of us are going to die. And then, a few hours later, Paul notices that some of the sailors are trying to sneak off the ship. Because they're so scared. They're trying to get on a lifeboat and, and go away. And then Paul says this in verse 30. As they lowered the lifeboat and tried to escape, Paul yelled to the soldiers, Get those sailors back on this ship or we're all going to die. Now, isn't that an odd 
combination. That Paul said, in verse 22, God said, none of you are going to die. And then in verse 30, he said, get them back on the ship or we're all going to die. And it's that strange combination that is absolutely baffling to the human mind. But why should we, in our mind, expect to understand this kind of thing? Um, That God is sovereign and we have free choices. I was so baffled by this this week that I actually stooped down to texting other pastors. And that's really, for me, that's difficult. So I texted some pastors, what do you think about this crazy verse? And one of them wrote back, God's plans never fail, and yet he chooses to use our participation in them. And that was a really good, helpful kind of condensation of this idea. God's plans never fail, but he chooses to use our participation And then, without really inviting more response, uh, the same guy texted back, uh, some things only happen if we pray. You know, I didn't ask anything about prayer, and yet he just chose to go ahead and mention prayer. He said, some things only happen if we pray, but God's sovereignty is not limited by our prayers. He just applied, he, he chose to apply this idea to prayer. That some things only happen if we pray, and yet in no way is God's sovereignty ever compromised. And then he went on to add this, which I definitely did not ask for. He said, uh, prayerlessness shows you don't even understand sovereignty. Like, I didn't ask him about prayerlessness. He just chose to put that in there. And then he said, prayer is the evidence of a living faith. There are a lot of reformed evangelicals whose faith is dead. And the proof is we don't pray. And thankfully, Esther was not a Reformed Evangelical because she, she prayed. She knew about prayer. She asked people to pray. The only reason she went into the king was because she believed so strongly in prayer. And she knew that it was not opposed to sovereignty. And she knew that it was the real engine of worldwide change was people praying. And uh, she makes this incredibly brave decision where she says, if I must die, I must die. In verse 16. So just because she asks for prayer doesn't mean she thinks she's going to live. She's still ready to die. And yet she knows that the only chance is going to be if she and all these people pray together for this thing to happen. This crazy plan to destroy Sauron. She says in verse 16, Gather all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days. My maids and I will do the same. I guess her maids were Jewish or they've been converted to Judaism by her. Then I will go and see the king. Now, I think it's really interesting. The author, such a clever writer, never mentions the word prayer. Because that would kind of give away the fact that the author believed in God. um, But says fast. So it chooses the word fast instead of prayer. But to any good Jew, they would know that fasting was kind of code language for really intense praying. And if you've never fasted and prayed, uh, you can't really understand what this means when... Esther's calling for a fast. It's kind of like prayer on steroids. It's a really highly focused kind of praying. Uh, when you fast, and by the way, the New Testament just assumes that people will fast. Uh, it's part of the book of Acts, is fasting. Um, and if you ever try to fast, you'll notice that your body will not get stronger. Uh, you might get a headache. You might get very sleepy. It's very tempting to take a nap, and that's fine. But fasting does not help your body feel better. And yet, somehow, your spirit um, gains strength in really a way that nothing else can bring about. You know, especially um, during that meal that you're skipping, you realize how much time you devote to food as well um, when you fast. And uh, your dependence on God grows, and your focus 
Kind of like when you're preparing for a, a huge game, the way an NBA uh, player would prepare for a gigantic game. You know, they have all these rituals they go through, and, and fasting focuses you very much on the task at hand. And I would, I would encourage you some Wednesday, skip lunch, uh, skip dinner, come to the prayer meeting, um, or any, you know, find out what meal is easiest to skip, and then skip a couple of them, and then, and then pray with some people, gather some people to prayer. Uh, it's really an amazing thing. And so um, it's very important, the choices that you and I make every day. Um, whether to fast, whether to pray, whether not to pray, whether to read the Bible that day, whether to go to small group or come to worship. Those little decisions matter, how we treat people around us, whether to be selfish or not, whether to give something or not. Um, all these little decisions matter enormously. And yet, my, my first point is that in spite of all those things, uh, the universe is not just a collection of, uh, of human decisions and then kind of particle interactions. So the story of the universe is not simply uh, a bunch of free will happenings and then all these atoms clashing together, making up this story that God is not really in control of. That's not the way it works. Somehow, all those things are under the sovereignty of God, and God is in total control. And Esther knew that. And Esther knew that she had to trust in God and trust in God's sovereignty. And that's what I want to look at next, is... um, is this idea of trust. And uh, trust does not mean you're happy. It doesn't mean you're, you're, you like what God is doing at all around you. Um, notice that Mordecai is crying with a loud and bitter wail. And that there's great mourning among the Jews in verse 1 and verse 3. Uh, trusting God, that is not a lack of trust in God. The fact that they're wailing and mourning right there. Um, that, that could actually be a sign of, God, of trust in God. So trust in God does not mean you're necessarily happy with God's plans. But it does mean that in tragedy, in the deepest tragedy, you, you, st- you see the invisible hand of God at work. You're aware that there is something behind the scenes. And it always leads you to ask the question, um, verse 14, who knows if perhaps I was made queen. Of course, none of us are queens. But who knows if, who knows if perhaps I was made to be a pastor for just such a time as this? Or, or who knows if you were made to be, you know, a, a worker at this, at X job for such a time as this. And who knows if perhaps God gave you this particular co-worker for just such a time as this. Or if you were made to be a student or a teacher or a boss or a roommate. Maybe, maybe you were made to be this person's roommate for just such a time as this. Or a customer, a customer at a store or a waiter to someone. I mean, I think that's the way that Mordecai is, is, is aware of the sovereignty of God, that there are times we're put in places for, at just the right time um, for certain reasons that we can't quite understand necessarily. And this is true, notice this is true of, of, of the betrayal of Vashti. Okay, so that was part of the plan. Of the shame of Esther and being basically captured into the king's harem. That was part of the plan. And of the decree of Haman... That was part of the plan. Again, trusting in God does not mean you're happy about what's happening. Uh, it doesn't mean hashtag blessed. I don't know if you've seen that hashtag, but there was a New York Times uh, article about this in 2014, May 2nd. And uh, it was by Jessica Bennett. And she says, here are a few of the ways that God has touched my social network. And I think she's being ironic. Uh, here are a few of the ways that God has touched my social network. 
uh, quote, helped a mom outfit her infant in a tiny designer frock, hashtag blessed. So that was on her Facebook. That was a post that someone put on her Facebook. Uh, quote, made it possible for a yoga instructor to go on a Caribbean spa retreat, hashtag blessed. This is the way that Americans are viewing, you know, God's sovereignty. Uh, 57 Facebook postings about my birthday, hashtag blessed. As a joke, um, a Pittsburgh comedian tweeted, caught a piece of bacon falling out of my sandwich right before it hit the ground, hashtag blessed. <laughs> so that's not, that's not the sovereignty of God. That, I mean, that is the sovereignty of God, but that's not trusting in the plan of God. Um, it's, not, it's not a Disney film. It doesn't always work out like a Disney film. You're not necessarily in a Thomas Kincaid painting. And uh, I don't mean to entirely critique Thomas Kincaid there. Uh, he is the painter of light, after all. But he paints these scenes of kind of nostalgic villages and rolling hills. And uh, rarely do you see tragedy in his paintings. In fact, um, I found out that Disney and Thomas Kincaid had created this conglomerate. I, I was typing in Kincaid's name and this came up. I didn't even know. When I decided on Disney and Kincaid, I did not know that they had done this. But there's now this thing called Disney Art, colon, a Thomas Kincaid company. So they have, they have come together and they're partnering on producing this highly Americanized version of the good life. And that's, that is not what trust in God means. Um, God's plan is more like something from a Dostoevsky novel or a Johnny Cash song or a painting by Rembrandt um, where there's a lot of darkness in these things. And um, Rembrandt actually perfected the art of this thing called chiaroscuro. And it's spelled C-I-C-H-I-A-R-O-S-C-U-R-O. Two Italian words, chia, which means light, and scuro, which means dark. And so if you look at many Rembrandt paintings, there's this really exaggerated contrast of a really bright face with darkness all around it. If you've ever seen a self-portrait, you, you see that, and it just it draws your attention right to the face, right to the light. Um, it creates a sense of almost like volume, like three-dimensional depth and stuff like that in a painting, and it enhances uh, the delineation of character and dramatic effect. And I'm not saying this because I'm an artistic snob, um, although I, I kind of am, but I'm saying it because God's plan has to include darkness, or else your faith is shallow. There's no other way to say it. Um, if, if you don't understand God's plan as including darkness, if you don't understand Esther saying, if I must die, I must die, then you don't really trust God very much. I mean, you might still have faith. I'm not saying you don't have faith, but the trust is weak. If I must die, I must die has got to be part of, of your faith. Um, because God's plan includes very difficult things. Um, you know, looking back on my life, I see God's plan in certain things. My high school experience was horrific. It was a, it was a nightmare. I was left out of things. I lost a lot of confidence in things. Uh, I got my heart broken in college for a little while. Um, I did not get in a PhD programs I wanted to get in. I felt like a failure. Um, I taught high school. Uh, my first year was the worst year of my life. I was terrible at it. I have had anxiety attacks and seizures and heart attacks. And think about any catastrophe you've ever had. 
and put that in the plan of God. Because that's part of the sovereign plan of God. And that's where you've got to trust. More than any other place is there. You know, trust is not worth much if it's not there. And those things. But if you get to know the ways of God, and over my 47 years, I've gotten to know uh, 47 years of God's ways in my life, you start to see weather patterns. Kind of like living in Winston-Salem, I know weather, weather patterns here. I know that the ice, snow, rain line always goes right through Forsyth County. And um, I, I have gotten to know the way the weather works in the spring and the winter and the summer. And if you watch God's ways, you begin to see patterns. And uh, you kind of know the way he does things, which is why uh, there's no substitute for reading the Bible. You're, you're not going to be able to understand the ways of God with people unless you read his stories and the ways that he's always interacting with his people. Uh, and there's a lot of darkness in the Bible, way more than most people think. You've got to get used to his style. You've got to get used to his style the way that you would a great director. So if you're, if you're going to a movie and it's a Spielberg film, you kind of know some of the things you're going to get or Christopher Nolan, or Martin Scorsese, or Terrence Malick, you kind of know this kind of film is going to be there. And when you read the Bible, you get to know the kind of director that God is. And you can kind of expect these kind of things that will happen in your life. And I believe that Esther's mind was just absolutely steeped in the biblical epic, that she knew those stories so well. They may not have been written down yet in a book, although perhaps part of, part of the Old Testament had been written down, but certainly there were stories told over and over, especially in exile. They would have had to remind each other, these Jews, of the story of God's ways with his people over and over. Their minds were just completely saturated in the promises of God. And so when they trusted God, they were trusting in his promises, not that their life would go well. Um, God does not promise things like uh, it's all going to be okay. He does not promise you're going to get well. Uh, He does not promise you're going to keep your job. He does not promise your marriage is going to stay together or your children are not going to rebel. He does not promise things. uh, He does not promise you're not going to go broke. Uh, What he promises are things like verse 14. uh, Deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise. Now that was a promise, which is why Mordecai told Esther that. And the second Esther heard that, she was like, I know that. I've read those verses. Uh, I've read Genesis 12, too, where God says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I mean, that would have been those uh, promises that the people of God uh, knew like the back of their hand. The Jews probably knew that as well as any promise in the entire Bible. They, They would have memorized that verse, that God said to our forefather Abraham, I will bless you. And I will bless the entire world through you and your people. And that's why Mordecai said, deliverance and relief for the Jews must arise. It must arise because God has promised that. This is part of God's plan. And and, uh, and Esther knew that. Esther knew that um, one day, as Isaiah says, Israel will blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. She knew that, uh, that the prophets had sung these songs of the way that Israel, little tiny Israel in exile would one day bless the entire world. And, it, and she has. And we know today she has. I wish Esther could be in here right now and look back on what's happened. But tiny, tiny little Israel would blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. 
And so Esther knew that there's no way my people could be wiped out. There's no way that Holocaust could work. Because we're going to have, we're going to have this presence on earth where the whole world will be blessed by us. Because her, her ears were so attuned uh, to the promises of God. Which I hope and pray would be true of us. More than CNN or Fox or NPR or, or what is happening in front of us right now, our present circumstances, uh, we've got to have our, our ears attuned to the promises of God in Scripture, like the ones I just read. I mean, in, in Esther's mind, there had to be voices attacking her that were saying, uh, he hasn't asked to see you for 30 days. Uh, the king probably doesn't like you right now. And if you go in there right now, he's going to kill you. The second you walk in there, uh, he is going to have your head cut off. I mean, that, those thoughts certainly would have been attacking her. And certainly the prayers of the people would have been trying to push those thoughts out of her head where she could turn up the volume uh, on the promises of God and turn down the volume on all those doubts in her head. Where she could uh, listen to these songs like Isaiah thirty-two fifteen. The Spirit will be poured out on Israel from heaven. The wilderness will become a fertile field, and the fertile field will yield bountiful crops. Um, that's the kind of thing that she knew about, where she understood that God was going to save the world through Israel. And she was part of that plan. And that she was made queen for just such a time as that. And so when she was walking in that room to talk to Xerxes, it was those promises that were pushing her forward into that incredible risk where she knew she could die. And, uh, and I believe that she knew, that somehow the Jews all knew that this person was coming. You know, it wasn't just the Jewish people, it wasn't just the nation of Israel. They knew a person was coming that they called the Messiah, the Anointed, the Son of David. Uh, a child would be born to them, a son would be given to them, and the whole world would be made at peace because of this person. And this person was going to come and turn the dark canvas of sin into a Rembrandt painting by bringing light in just the right places. I mean, Esther, let's not forget, she grew up in exile. She was a persecuted minority, a female. She was, she was stolen to sex slavery. She was a victim of sex trafficking. She was subject to a holocaust. Her husband was about to kill her. And so all this sin and suffering and sorrow, and somehow she knew that this, this person would come as Isaiah says, who would, he would take up our pain. He would bear our suffering. He would be pierced for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace would be on him. And by his wounds, we would be healed. Uh, this suffering servant, as the Jews called him, and as we call him as Christians, uh, he didn't say, if I must die, I must die. He said, I am going to die. And the, the promise of God was, I am going to die. Not I might die, but I will die. I'm going to die for them to pay for their sins and make the whole world come to life through my death and resurrection. And so we celebrate that greatest of all promises, that the death of Christ would somehow annihilate death uh, and that his resurrection would usher in an entire new creation, a new world. Um, we celebrate that in this meal, which is an embodied promise of God. It's a promise that is contained in bread, and in this case, only grape juice. No wine tonight. So it's bread and grape juice. But the grape juice suffices to carry forward uh, the, that pungency of the promise of God. So when we eat the bread and we drink from the cup, 
Uh, it is a true proclamation uh, that Christ has died, uh, that Christ has risen, and that Christ would come again.